you're joking, but I feel much safer among Mormons who still hold to some form of objective truth, even if I disagree with it, because Mormons also believe that I should be free to have my own sense of objective truth and, you know, and, and the ability to speak my mind, even if they disagree with it. Now they won't let me speak my mind if I want to be counted among their numbers, because they'll boot me out right, right away. But at least they'll let me in the cultural hall and I can eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, hey, with supervision. So if you're going to abandon the church because you think Joseph Smith is a pedophile, but you're now articulating your worldview on a structure built from Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, and you can throw Judith Butler in as well. You know, she's written a defense of the incest taboo. So like when, when the church was saying you've got to be wary of moral relativism, it's kind of this stuff they were talking about. Actually, I'll let you yep. introduce the talk. Sure. So so I was thinking about something I've been trying to get to in my own podcast, but I think it's fine to expose your audience to it as well. And uh, maybe it'll actually get a little bit more circulation that way. Yeah. Uh, and that is good things that ex-Mormons tend to abandon, which they shouldn't. And if you put that as like the the title, you're going to get a lot of like, nobody can tell me what I should or shouldn't do. And like, I totally get that because once you leave the paradigm of a top-down hierarchy, authoritarian religious system, you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And so I want to kind of diffuse that at the first, and I'm not accusing ex-Mormons of being bad or anything like that. I just think that there's something that as we go on this journey away from the church, you kind of have to stop back. And I want to preface this with a concept called Chesterton's Fence, um, which it's made a little bit of a comeback recently. Have any of you guys heard of Chesterton's Fence? No, this one's new. So there's this, this is a guy named G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, and there's a quote in one of his books uh, that I'll read, and it's, there exists in such a case a certain institution or law. Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let's clear it away to which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly will not let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you come back and Mm. tell me that you see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. And I want you to think about that. When you see a fence and you look around and you don't see any, why is this fence here? There's no reason you tear it down. You have no idea. Fences get put up for reasons whether it's to keep resources in, to keep predators out. You know, there's a reason that a lot of different boundaries exist. And if you go in and simply tear it down without thinking about its utility, you may end up endangering yourself, making yourself more vulnerable. And it's just, some, it's a principle that it's, you, you really want to very carefully consider the things that you abandon that works so well. When Kwaku tells me that he has a great deal of happiness, he has a great deal of community, he has a great deal of things that he has by nature of his membership in the church that he doesn't have any confidence he would have without that, I believe him. And that's because there's very good aspects of the church that people can gain benefit from. And it's actually really sad, and I felt it in my own life, that you lose it when you lose the community of the church when you decide that you have to step away because there's something very... um, good about the community of the church. Brad, are you signaling you want to interject something here? I just really, really like this principle that you're talking about um, because I've heard a very similar um, way of talking about this, where if you have a school that doesn't have handicap access, 
Um, the mm-hmm. best option is to build wheelchair ramps to that school rather than tear the whole school down, right? Mm-hmm. You have if you have one yeah. issue with the entire structure, don't get rid of the whole structure. Just solve the problem. You sound yeah. like a problem. It's the revolution that. versus reform quandary. Exactly. The revolution versus reform yeah. thing. And and I think um this this one's kind of funny because I feel like um and maybe I'm taking this the wrong direction away from where you want to go with this, but um I actually had a good conversation about this with a woman on my mission where we were talking with her about things that she saw going wrong in our ward. And I was like, hey, you know, if there is a cog missing from the machine that makes it run, what do you do with that? Like, you, if you could just put the cog back in and then things would run well, that's maybe the best bet, right? And she's like, that's what I tell my labor unions. And you're telling me <laughs> that I just need to come back. Huh? I'm like, yup. <laughs> and I, I do think there's a degree of that. In, in, in ways that people can, like, help fix things that are maybe going wrong. But um, back to you. Take it the direction you no, want. No, that's I, okay. I, I get your point on that. And people who've left the church that have the wounds that they see in their life from the church, you know, you spend a lot of time wanting to point to the bad things in the church. And I'm not going to invalidate any of the bad things that critics have to say in the church. The people that feel hurt by that have reasons that they feel hurt for that. And many of them are legitimate. And so what I'm going over here is not to say anything about any of that. All of that stuff is real. This is just to say, despite that, there's some good things in the church that, you know, you can hold on to, even if you do decide that your place is not with the church in the future. So Mm. one of the things that, um, So I kind of distilled it down to, I think, three things. And the first one, I think, has been one of the hallmarks of President Nelson. And a lot of ex-Mormons like to really criticize the prophet because he's the person who holds that authority that you felt once you realized that authority was not legitimate in your life, according to your new beliefs. It's kind of an, an affront to your agency. But he has really doubled down on this idea of universal humanity, that all are children of God. And so that we should see each other, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our orientation, our gender, our race, any of those things, we should see each other as um, fellow children of God. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to have a very unifying and universalizing, universalizing conception of humanity. And it gives everybody a common ground to start from, to see each other as equals and to work forward in reconciliation for past wrongdoings, in uh, a way that diminishes resentment and division because it's all about unifying people who all have an inherent human dignity by nature of being children of God. Now, if you leave the church, you may or may not decide to hold on to a conception of God, but that principle is still really, really important for our society. And that's why I was so pleased to hear Elder Suarez give a talk in, I put it on my YouTube channel. You guys may see it. It's the universalizing. I gave it the title because he didn't give it the title. It was a keynote address to a DFW group talking about human rights or something like that and religious freedom. But he, the framework of his talk is based on the idea of universal human dignity. And I love that way of framing it because it doesn't refer to any God or anything like that. And so it's a concept that People who do have a abiding faith in God can say human dignity, yes, it's something that is inherent to our state as children of God. People who don't 
start from a premise of God can say human dignity, absolutely, it's something that is inherent to our nature as human beings on a planet. And so it's a universalizing principle that can serve as a foundation for what I think is the most productive way for us to progress as a society. And that's when you contrast that with the type of moral framework we're starting to see that our conversations need to have around dividing society into identity groups, pitting us against each other on a hierarchy of oppression, Mm -hmm. and even betraying our prior revulsion against things like racism by saying we have to do reverse racism in order to make any progress. Because all of those things, when you take human psychology, game theory, you know, evolutionary principles about how a society works together and the psychology of all the agents in the society, those are going to create greater division, greater strife, greater chaos, and are absolutely not universalizing. And it's gotten to the point so much that we're now saying that Martin Luther King Jr., who was the principal architect in the, in the conversation around ending the the segregation era and and progressing us as a society and his idea that you know we should be able to see everybody as uh, that the content of their character is what matters not whether they're skin or white or black and a very encompassing universal view of humanity he's now demonized for that because he said well that's actually racist because it doesn't center identity it doesn't center race which you have to do if you want to operate and liberate yourself from oppressive structures And, you know, just look at any relationship, look at any company, any institution that starts adopting that more divisive ideology that says, no, 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 we can't treat each other as equals and judge each other by the content of our character. We need to first start with our positionality on this hierarchy of oppression and then privilege some people who've been oppressed in the in the past that, you know, that is the moral framework of the day. That is the conversations you're starting hearing online and in institutions, and it is toxic to any pluralistic society that has people of all different backgrounds and um, and ideas. So that's kind of that principle of the universal humanity that's in Mormonism articulated as um, we are all children of God is something that if you step away from Mormonism and you abandon that universalizing principle of human dignity, um, I think that you are... You just look at the stories of different societies that have decided to stratify their culture by clay, by class. I'm doing a series now on my podcast where I'm going through and I'm finding all the different depictions of struggle sessions from the cultural revolution in China yeah. and biographical accounts of people who lived through that because the same type of discussion about how we should stratify society around class and the same demonization, we call it cancel culture or whatever, just look at the accounts of these struggle sessions and you'll see what happened. And, you know, you talk about Nazis being bad for killing 20 million people in the World War II or whatever, and then Russia killing 50 million people. And, you know, the, the, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution having 100 million people or more dead at, as a result of that, those are real things you have to consider uh, when yeah. you decide that this is the ideology that you're going to adopt because it only leads to extremism. Yeah. Well, that's all well and, and good. The fact that you're a straight white that, man who says that makes me very angry. And, you know, <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> no, but I totally get what you're saying with um, basically the Chesterton fence purpose that we're talking about here is yeah. to give a universal human dignity to everybody. That is the purpose of that fence of 
everyone is a child of God and that's what you shouldn't let go mm-hmm. of, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I'm going to jump in and then we'll throw to Quaco here. Here's a question for you, Jonathan. I've had this conversation with uh, many atheistic people. Dennis Prager has had this uh, conversation. And, and my question on this is, I don't see how without a belief in God, you can justifiably anchor a belief that all humans really do deserve dignity because there's no precedent outside of a Christian God who believes that all of his children have an inherent value as his children. And as the doctrine and covenant says, the worth of souls is great in the eyes of God. The Greek gods viewed humans as disposable. In, in all the pantheons of all the other thought processes and worldviews that humans have been able to come up with, whether it's uh, communism or atheism or whatever, there's never been a way that humankind has been able to truly give itself the dignity you say we need to give it until we had Christianity And I don't think any faith has a doctrine that better articulates that inherent value than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's actually the number one reason, if you go back and you look at a very old podcast that we did with Jim Bennett, where we were asked, what's the number one most important thing that you like about the church that keeps you in? I Mm -hmm. said, Mm -hmm. it's it's the, the fact that the number one lesson is that you have an inherent value as a child of God and that the number one most translated song in the world, thank you to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is I am a child of God. And so my question for you is, I agree. You and I wholeheartedly agree that first and foremost, we need to view each other with that human dignity. Hence, we address each other with Rappaport's rules of engagement. Hence, we view each other with Chesterton's fence law and so on and so forth. But now my question to you is how without a sincerely held belief in God, can we actually view each other as dignified? Because I've never seen a Mm non-Christian society do that. Well, this is something that's actually very personal to me because it is sort of, it started my own journey kind of that eventually led me out of the church. So you, this might be a dangerous idea. That's it. But, Shut um, it down. Shut it down. No. <laughs> Set fire so, to the recording. <laughs> um, you know, I was working as a physician in the military and I was, Ooh, thank you for your um, started to rotate through the, uh, the army base. And I started to see these broken bodies of these young people who are far younger than me families that were just decimated by the death and and what i came to determine was kind of a pointless war and um you know in my search for my own answers on that political question of is you know is this really how like what do the prophets have to say about war it led me to some very difficult places for me to understand as a mormon when i saw the prophets kind of just saying just do what your country says to the point that there were mormon and you didn't really have prophets speaking out against unjust and illegitimate wars. And that led me to ask the question, are there moral frameworks that I can understand that still provide me to uh, kind of make sense of all of this, 
but exist outside of a religious authoritarian structure. And, and so I saw the people who were pushing back against the war. And it was actually Ron Paul. It was like this debate that he had. He was and he my started boy. talking about Ron Paul was my boy. <laughs> he started talking about blowback and the reason we were attacked at 9-11 and Rudy Giuliani was like, well, you need to take that back. And so then he came out later with a reading list, the Rudy Giuliani reading list. And so I started paying attention. Who is this Ron Paul guy? And why is he the guy who I think is actually talking from a moral position of strength about the problem with our war? And so there's a line of thinking that you'll see libertarians, philosophical libertarians, not political libertarians, that start with something called the non-aggression principle. And it is rooted in the concept of human, of, of natural law, natural rights, that was the philosophical heir around the time of the founding of our constitution. And it's those principles that made its way into our constitution. And I think part of the reason that you find such a synergy with your conception of human rights as coming from God is because it, a lot of it did, I think we have a lot of Christian thought in centuries before that helped the philosophers who came to this point be able to articulate it, but they articulated it in a way that doesn't make any reference to God. You can understand the moral foundation of the non-aggression aggression principle and then how it branches out and how you can try to understand any particular moral question by ask, kind of working your way through the premises and assumptions that stem from the non-aggression principle. So, but for me, that was a way to see that human rights and human dignity can exist in a way that you can then say, well, wait a second, if this thing is true, but then this particular religious leader isn't it is betraying that principle, then I need to make sense of this. And for me, it was when I couldn't make sense of it, that kind of gave me permission to look into the church history a little bit more, to look at the criticisms of Joseph Smith and everything. But there does exist a way of thinking about morality that continues to uphold the principle of human dignity that is not rooted in any, any religious tradition. Now, that being said, there are a whole bunch of people who start with this non-aggression principle that are very devout Christians. And you'll find in the philosophical libertarian community, a lot of them are Catholic, a lot of them are Protestant. There's a, just a wide variety of people who understand these principles, and then they interpret and live their life according to Christian values that reflect those principles. And it's it's very synergistic to do that, because the, the non-aggression principle is formulated as something like the golden rule. And there's just so many different moral downstream effects of the golden rule that if you want to say, okay, well, you know, really, really root it down, how, you know, and you'll find philosophers who will say, well, the non-aggression principle is inherently contradictory. And so it's no real moral basis. The thing about philosophy is that you're going to find, you can't really talk about it because somebody's going to say that you've, you know, you've betrayed some moral principle according to some philosophical, and you realize there's just a bunch of people's opinions, but there's a utility to some of them. And I think this is a really powerful one because when we look at the positive aspects that starting with a basis of universal human dignity has, it allows us to confront the issue of race. It allows us to confront the issue of, uh, you know, people who are homosexual. It just allows so many different ways for us to understand and then see things through a moral lens that is, is consistent. And so that's one way that I approach that question. So I, I, I think that's a very solid answer. I, my, my concern with it still comes from the idea with the Chesterton's fence analogy, right? You, you have the fence there. You have the purpose of the fence is to give everyone universal human dignity. I think that when you remove God from the equation and you remove that we are all children of God and the implications that that has and how eternal we are in nature, the way that C.S. Lewis talks about how like we 
could be talking to somebody, anybody we talk to could one day be the highest, most holy being that we could possibly envision or the most horrible, like cretinous person ever, right? The, the eternal potential that we have. I think when you lose that and the idea that we are children of God, we, we leave the fence there, but we get rid of the foundations of the fence, right? You, you get rid of the concrete, keeping the fence in place and it makes it much easier to knock over. I, I do believe that it's still better than not having it there. But I do think that it makes it much easier to knock over. I do think that's what's happening with a lot of the woke ideology stuff that we see where people start, even from an idea of universal ideology. It's very simple to then knock over that fence just a little bit to say, oh, but, you know. No, I I, I see your point on that. And I think that's why you'll find in the ex-Mormon community a lot of people who don't really start from a philosophical moral foundation of I need to figure out this idea first. They simply just throw away the church and then they they don't think through the philosophical underpinnings of that that can exist outside of a claim of of divine authority. Mm. So, and so you you know those are the people that then lose the universalizing human principle because they just, just you know if, well if, you know if the church says that that's the way it is then I'm going to abandon that and then I'm going to go with this other thing uh, and they never think about the fact of that. Now, if you start your journey by trying to explore those moral principles then you're not as likely to do it. But on the question of well it has to start with God and there's no way to conceptualize it out of God. You know, my response to that is I, I gave um, to Cardin's statement is that there does exist frameworks that exist outside of God. Oh, but and, and, and my, they, we have a argument. lot to we have a lot to be thankful for of the academic and theological tradition of Christianity for finding some shape and form to those principles that then could exist even independent of God. Because I, I hear you on the good parts of the God thing, but the thing is. You're saying that from the Mormon safe space of God and your conception of God, but the principle of God allows other people to cl- to tie God and say, yes, we're all children of God, but some people are more children than others. And so, you know, there are and, people. And I would say they're just wrong, claims. right? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you can the... make the claim that they're wrong on a philosophical basis that doesn't extend to any religious authority, there's power in that because it doesn't matter what space you spend in, you can claim you're wrong. But if you say that they're wrong because Joseph Smith says this and this and all the prophets say this and this, then that's, people are going to say, well, that's just a competing religious ideology. And uh, But um, I don't think it's, it's just because it's less Joseph Smith says it. I, I think it's because God is our father beyond any religious revealed authority. I, I think that's an eternal truth that goes. And that's a brick in your way of thinking that may not exist in that, somebody else. That so keeps if you try the to fence confront that, then. from getting knocked over. Yeah, can right. I can I interject here? I follow. Um, sure. Do you guys know what PIC is? PIC. PIC. Mm-mm. PIC is philosophy is cringe, uh, <laughs> and I follow that because oh um, I, I I lead in like I have something. Was that a Quaku hand grenade? Um, you got just no, like I, oh hey. I know? seriously I I feel like uh, I, people. Well, the thing is, I agree with it. I mean, that's the problem. A lot, all that woke stuff that you're talking it's, about is the fruit of cringy philosophy. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, we, we get together and we discuss all these hypotheticals over and over and over again about, you know, religion, it, it, religion being involved or not involved in certain things. But I tell you, I have these moments where I, I and I agree with so much of what you've said today, Jonathan. And so what what I get confused about is you recognize the fragility of a society that we enjoy 
the fragility of Western principles. These are great things we enjoy. We like how our society runs. We like what it's based upon. And we also understand that um, other gods, and when I say gods, I'm not just speaking scripturally. I mean Kim Jong-un as a god, right? Powerful institutions or ideas that wish to disrupt the fabric of what we love. When those things come, and we have taken the Judeo-Christian ethics, morality, and belief, and yes, even the superstition, away from society, I think we're already showing that we don't hold up by ourselves. It literally just takes 10 angry, pierced-up, blue-haired art students at a university to totally upend curriculum and get established academic professors on tenure hiding under their desks. Okay? Yeah. We have we we have this Judeo-Christian history. Regardless of if parts of it suck, right? Some of the reverends were stupid. Some of the apostles were boneheads. That's just the way it is. I fully recognize that. But we're already seeing what happens when we say, okay, well, we can appreciate the values they taught, but we don't necessarily need the superstition or the dogma that goes along to it. I think you do need the dogma and the superstition because we've we've already tested out these past couple years and removing that. And I, I it sucks. It, it literally it sucks. I I I as 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 a college-aged guy what's happening on my and by the way, you, you you're Gen X, okay? And and Cardin, you're Gen X. So you guys you no, guys No, I'm it. an elder millennial. Don't oh, you right, dare you put that shame on me. <laughs> you two millennials, okay. Okay. Gen Xers, I think Jonathan, you're a Gen X. You guys get it, but also you don't get like like I'm in the crossfire. Like it's worse than you think. And I'm just saying I don't care if you come back to my church. Be a Presbyterian, a Catholic, whatever. But good grief. You need some Judeo-Christian dogma because I don't think the strength to fight against the foreign gods is actually strong enough right now. I think you literally need that magic. And um, and we're getting our asses kicked. <laughs> yep. Well, I want to validate what you say, Kwaku, and I think that, that I don't want it to be seen as dogma is what we're adhering to, though. I think that when you say Judeo-Christian stories, uh, values and the superstition and all that stuff, part of the trouble I have talking with you guys is that I know what it's like to live in the church and to conceive of church as an authoritarian top-down. When I say authoritarian, I mean, there's a line of authority that exists in a hierarchy that um, it goes in one direction. You know, there's not, there's a concept called polity that different churches have, which is how the church manages itself. And the Mormon church has a very top-down rigid hierarchy polity. And that's not how other churches are necessarily. There are some that exist that way, but there are other churches that it exist in a paradigm where, like in one of your recent episodes, Kwaku, you mentioned that you left the Methodist church and no one was like, you know, persecuting you for that. And you didn't feel the need to start a podcast called, you know, Methodist Expressions or whatever. But that speaks to the different character of what it means to be in certain types of other churches where there's not an insistence on a particular line of thinking about things and and stuff though like <laughs> i was i'm i'm participating in a community theater outreach that, which is basically just the youth program of the local lutheran church and i don't go to the church 
I've been to it a few times. I'm not a joiner, but I'm totally in on the community outreach part of it That's because it's like the best parts of the community. And they have prayer before performances. They, you know, the, the leaders cuss. It's like, it's very irreverent, but it's unifying and it's beautiful. That's awesome. And when I go to their liturgy, I, I realize that what they see of religion is very different because in Mormonism, it's very materialistic, meaning that it believes in a very tangible world, matter and everything. And it's very literal and concrete. And they believe that truth does matter and that the things that they teach are true. And in the past, there was a literalness to that truth. And we're seeing it morph a little bit more into metaphorical, but these other religions are far ahead of the game on that. And so they're able to continue to talk and include superstition and include scripture, even though the pastors themselves know that there's so many problems with seeing scriptures like historical documents or literal history or everything, but there are lessons in those scripture that have stood the test of time. And yeah, there's a bunch of crap in the Bible, but those aren't the lessons that continue to make them way into the sermons. Okay. And so, so but I'm the, sorry. I thought you were ahead. ending right there. I apologize. I was just going to say, I told you 45 minutes. We're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes. I'm not causing grief with your wife or anything oh, like that. Right. Know. Okay, so it, there might be some. Okay, oh, no. okay. we're gonna end in five minutes. I'm sorry, Mrs. Streeter. If you can hear us, it's not our fault. Quaku, one last question. Yes, two it, last it, questions, it, it, yeah, and then okay. we gotta let him go. Uh, well, I, I, I still have two, like two more points. If we can finish oh, the conversation, oh, hit it. Yeah, we, hit we it. should fit hit those. It. We should fit. Those. We can fit them all in. I just want to make sure okay. that I'm not getting you know. But I don't I'll, care what the. Uh, what, what well, I want to hear if, if Quaco has well, anything to follow that up. The natural flow. I just want to finish with this one point before you get there, Quaco. Okay, so there's a famous debate between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson started that. I started that debate. Really conceptualizing truth as the Sam Harris paradigm, which is that I, I live in an objective world. I need to look at things objectively and rationally. And Jordan Peterson did his best in that lecture to, to evade that being pinned down on objective truth. And it became clear by the end of like eight hours or whatever, he wasn't really concerned about objective truth. He was concerned about truth in the sense of things that have a a way of bringing meaning, purpose, and efficacy into the life of people who hold on to it. And when I started to, because everybody hates Jordan Peterson, so I'm like, let me see what the deal is with this guy, because everybody hates him. And so I started listening to some of his stuff, and I started seeing that the way that he was analyzing and looking at scripture and scriptural story, trying to draw useful ideas and principles out of them that have an effect if you apply them in your life and, and have a broad effect in society if everybody applies them in their life, I saw there's something to him that I I found worthwhile in following and, and seeing and then just kind of revisiting my whole conception of the religious question. Mm. And I think there was there's, you know, I don't agree with him in everything, but I really like the idea of looking at scripture and mythology because I, I love analyzing movies and I love, you know, it's kind of weird. One of the things I really thought was ridiculous and bonky about Scientology is that L. Ron Hubbard said like the storytellers and the creators were this, you know, higher level of being. And I was like, that's, he's an idiot. But <laughs> hey, what are you talking when about? I see, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when I see the stories that last and the stories that have meaningful effect in people's lives, those things are really powerful. Mm. And so you can look and find scripture in the book of Mormon and in the Bible principles and ideas that do have a positive effect if you apply them in your life. And you can do that even if you understand and you accept the idea that the Book of Mormon is a piece of 19th century religious fiction. There's still stuff you can learn and find useful, particularly if you don't 
put yourself under the entire umbrella of the authority paradigm there. And that's from my perspective. Yeah. But you can do that. And I do it with Lord of the Rings. You know, I just, it's a beautiful piece of literature. Like the thing that book that made me cry more than anything else is just like uh, Le Mis. And the story, there's such, you know, it's a very Christian, very religious thing, but yeah, there's... Your, your answer, this, you're, so it's exactly right, like, like you're saying exactly what I'm, what I think, but just the opposite. So, like, you're, you're, like, saying, <laughs> I'm like, no, I agree, but that's bad. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, it's like, when you don't have the, 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 the David and Goliath and the literal belief of those things, you've got to get the J.R. To talk, to Tolkien. That's... You got to get that. You have to do the other stuff in place of it, but that doesn't save us from the foreign gods that want to come in. And I, I mean, again, without bagging on our other Christian friends, the Lutherans certainly have not stepped up to the plate to protect our and, Western society. And, and here's one thing I want to say things. about this. No. And then we got to we got to let Jonathan get yeah, to the rest get, of his let stuff. him finish everything. I, I I think we can disagree about whether or not this principle works without God or not. But I think you are 100% correct that it is far better to have it there as universal human dignity, whether you believe in God or not. Right. I think we can yeah. all agree on that. Right. Yeah. Unless it's the. Yes. No. I. Agree. <laughs> yeah, yes. And also uh, we're going to move on. Move on to the second topic you want to talk about or the second okay. part of topic. What do you want to talk about? But before you do, the last thing I'll say on this is we just recorded a podcast where somebody asked us if they thought there was a legitimate reason to um, leave the church. And I said, I don't like the word legitimate. It's not the word I would have chosen. But there's there's reasons that I often can understand more. And I gave an example of parents that I had lived with in a children's hospital of Los Angeles where you just see so much suffering from a, a child and you think, how is this possible? And I, I think I might have even, I think I made an example of people that go to war or other things like that. So I just want to say that I I literally just yesterday recorded a podcast in which I say I can empathize with much of what caused your questioning in the very beginning. And that was beautiful. And I thank you for sharing your story with us. Now you're wrong and you're probably a bad person. No, I'm just kidding. Now I'm going to say uh, we would, I knew you were this. going there. Yeah, for, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, now, uh, you know, I, I would love to have a debate with you because both of us have been through excruciatingly difficult things in hospitals. Mine with my daughter, you with soldiers that you loved. You know what I'm saying? And I do think sometimes there's just situations you're in where I have zero judgment for what you want, went through. So I'm super, I'm, I feel grateful and honored that you shared that with us. And I, I, I very much actually do see a lot of where you come from um, in this regard. And I want to know what, what's this second thing? What's the second? Okay, so you know what's the second? So the next you're, one. You're on a roll. The the heading okay. that I put the next one is called "Seeing the Good," okay. and I I want to start basically with the last stanza of the thirteenth article of faith, which is that if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. And I guess I'd need to kind of take you on a journey because there's something very alluring of tearing things down, of criticizing. Because when you when you can point to something and say that's wrong, it there's there's a rush of moral superiority that affects your psychology. Mm. And it makes you feel better about yourself because you have pointed out to something wrong. And when it's wrong and somebody else is being hurt, then you're defending somebody who's oppressed. That also feels good. There's you know, there's a chemical reaction in your brain, a sense of ego that 
comes in. And if it's part of your own story and liberating yourself from something that you now see was hurtful to you in the past, there's a, a personal catharsis that goes along with it. And the, the start of the journey of Mormonism does involve you kind of figuring out, wait a second, if, 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 you know, if I now conceptualize Joseph Smith as this different thing, I have to go through and, and analyze every single aspect about what I thought was real and what I thought was good and right and from God and what it means. And you start to be vocal because you want the validation of other people understanding why you're leaving because you still want to see yourself as a good person. You want other people who respect you to understand why you leave. And it usually ends up with a lot of people just posting like crazy. I did it myself. You know, this is why that's the wrong, the wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> and then you you go out and then you start to see different ways that people have taken this concept of criticism yeah. and they have made a, like a brilliant art form of it and they're able to do it and they can find something wrong in everything. Yes. And that has taken over and criticism and skepticism are two different things. I think Uchtdorf has a famous talk where he invokes these two things and, uh, you know, his idea is that, you know, we can't be cynical and, and skepticism. We have to be careful of. But the thing is, I want to focus on, like, both cynicism and skepticism are important concepts to wrestle with. You know, cynicism, where you're going to assume something bad about someone and start with that as kind of your baseline assumption. There, there's a protective element of that. Like, if you want to protect yourself from abuse and manipulation, you don't want to be taken in by some scam or something, you have to have an element of cynicism where you say, wait a second, this person could be trying to take advantage of me, or there could be something amiss here, and at least pose that question and then be wary of it. But if you take that cynicism and you ramp it up to 11 and you apply it to every dimension of your life, then suddenly... How are you going to live with people when you're automatically assuming yeah. that something, you know, when the act of opening a door for someone, wait, wait a second, that's sexist, you know, that degree of cynicism ramped up. And this is where there's this phenomenon that I guess you're not supposed to say, which is that, you know, feminine Mormon housewives took the Internet world by storm. And I think it really captured a lot of the the feelings that exist in Mormon women who are dealing with all the things that go along with that role. And it's a very you know, there's kind of a, a Mormon mom thing as much as the church doesn't want, oh, you could be Sherry Do. And it's like, there is kind of a, a way that women are raised and conceptualize their life in. And there's kind of a pattern. And if you don't fit that pattern, you're kind of on the outs. And so there was a period of time on the internet where a lot of women were starting to explore the ideas of feminism and look at their life in Mormonism, the culture and teachings of the church in Mormonism through the lens of feminism. But the thing is, feminism is not like one thing. Yeah. Like there are multiple waves of feminism yep. and each subsequent wave incorporated more philosophical jargon and assertions into them that completely upended the way that women yep. could conceptualize themselves and their lives. Yep. And so you could, you could, you know, just Google first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave Mormon uh, feminism and look at the different ideas. Yeah. Because I, by the time you get to fourth wave Mormonism, women disappear. Because the entire category of women is now considered oppressive. You yeah. mean fourth wave and feminism? No, no, no. Fourth wave Mormonism. Oh. We deleted no. <laughs> women because oh. God no. told <laughs> us to, Cardin. No, you're totally right. Okay, yeah. but so imagine yeah, now no, that we, you are a married you. Mormon, a, a married Mormon woman, and you start exploring these ideas, and you really agree with a lot of it, and then the people who articulate it start to 
invoke different philosophical figures that have made really powerful and effective arguments in the landscape of feminism that transcend now and go through these different waves. So suddenly the feminism that you thought you were fighting for a, a kind of general gestalt idea of equality is no longer what they're talking about. Yeah. And soon you're given all the tools that you need to interpret any given action as oppressive to you because of your gender. And so you're married and you're in a relationship with a guy who let's say he's not really that. I mean, he's just like an, an average guy. That's not, you know, he also wants to be equal and is not trying to oppress you. You've been given a framework to look at the mere existence and anything that he might do, you are given the vocabulary to say that is oppressive and that is sexist, even if it's not his intention, because no, intention no longer matters. Only the way you interpret it, your yeah. lived experience. Intention's matters. gone. Impact and, is the only thing that matters. Yeah. 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 And and you've been given the tools. And as much as you guys probably don't like to hear it, the idea that the prophet can say that saying the word Mormon is a victory for Satan. He's giving you a tool to now take offense uh, in the same way that these philosophers say so something I, I and so think now if someone says Mormon, you're misinterpreting his talk, though. So I, I get where you're going with it. But he, he was saying divorcing the idea of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from Jesus Christ by using the term Mormon is what is the victory for Satan, not just using the term Mormon. So I, I do see people. Okay, I, so I, I that's see the, people that's saying the beauty doing what you're of saying. having an idea that you can point to a specific, but then if you look how Mormons interpret it, just read the comments. Uh, actually, we don't like to be called Mormon anymore. That's actually as bad as the N-word. And like you, you can see how people are I, applying that I, I get what you're saying. Lives, yeah, how I get it's what actually you're affected them. Yeah. And, and they're okay, wrong. But they've been given they... <laughs> now a new reason to take offense in the same way that people, feminists who go to the extremes of that ideology have new ways to take offense and to feel like it has to lie. And the but thing is that I don't think now, that was President Nelson's point at all. And I think they're twisting it and doing it wrong when they do that. But I get where you're coming from. So are we saying that, okay. like, honestly, just women are a, are a mistake, right? Have we just all... No, <laughs> no, 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 no. no. What I'm saying true. is that anytime, anytime you adopt an ideology, mm -hmm. you got to ask yourself, at what point does this go too far? At what point, if I take this ideology to its extreme, am I now incapable of having any relationship with anyone? Because just imagine that the roles were reversed and your husband was now interpreting anything that you said or did as oppressive to him, even if it wasn't your intent, even if you're trying, that's an interpretation that's going. Now, I, I know I'm going to get reamed in the world of feminism for saying this, mm -hmm. but that you know, just look at how like it. I guess that goes a little bit into the last point that I, I have, but I need to finish this thing about cynicism. So yeah. cynicism can be protective and healthy in to a certain extent. And it also can be destructive and divisive if you take it to an extreme. And that is in many different facets of your life. Um, skepticism. Now, you have to have Is some this topic standard. number three? Is number three skepticism? No, no, no. This is skinicism and skepticism oh, okay, are both cool. under this they're, heading they're of too related seeing to the good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You know, you have to have some standard of truth. You have to have some way to legitimate claims that no. can be legitimate. There is only personal truth. <laughs> only personal yeah. lived well, truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is that this ideology that is taken over completely destroys that at the beginning. You know, this yeah. whole concept of epistemology how you know what is true is true is something that is assaulted from the get-go. Yeah. And 
it's funny because once I started to see that this is a, what's underlying a lot of the waves of movements in our culture, I can now understand when you go back and look at the philosophers who were first making this impact in the 1960s, it now makes sense that a lot of the general authorities were talking about moral relativism. Because, you know, you'll hear a lot of ex-Mormons talk about, well, we've got to deconstruct this and deconstruct that. Well, and it's we've like gaslighting, dog whistle. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not words. talking about that. I'm talking specifically deconstructing about deconstructing. Yeah, deconstructionism. No, this one even predates those. And, and I, I yeah. totally see where you're coming from because I got a theater degree. And weirdly enough, this was what we were taught. Because that well, exactly. Yeah. Like, but the thing is, like, there's good aspects, like looking at what you believe, why you believe it, where those ideas came from is good. Yep. But when you marry it to this idea that language is the shaper of our reality and can be manipulated and your interpretation is the only thing that counts for it, then you start to enable some really dangerous paths that you go around. So, you know, people who go and they'll get liberal arts degrees and they studied a whole bunch of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida as ways to understand how we can look at the power structures in society and conceptualize knowledge and see that knowledge is really an exercise of power and we need to deconstruct and work with all this stuff. What you end up doing is you end up where just, you know, the assault on our Western values, you know, our Western values include our knowledge producing academic machinery where we can test claims, validate them for their legitimacy and have people with different biases check each other so that we can have the best approximation of truth that is subject to continual revision. That gets blown away as some sort of, uh, you know, colonial project that we need to abandon for different ways of knowing. But that is how we have made the most rapid progress in our understanding of the world and our ability to improve the human condition as a result of it. And so throwing away those things gets to be really, but really dangerous. But that's what happens when you take skepticism yeah. and turn it up to 11. Mm -hmm. Like you have to know that there are ways to know things that are true and things that aren't true. But you can't just say that there's no way to know any truth at all. Yeah. And so then anything really goes. Because when you go and you look at Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, just Google, uh, uh, what is it? Um, I'm going to do an article, a translation of this, but they signed their name to an article requesting that the French government decriminalize. Wasn't it uh, intergenerational? Yeah, with that's what children. what's the what's the and, euphemism that YouTube will allow? I was looking for it. Too. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll yeah. say intergenerational relations. Yeah. Um, but like you have to. So if you're going to abandon the church because you think Joseph Smith is a pile, yes. but you're now articulating your worldview on a structure built from Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. And you can throw Judith Butler in as well. She's the one who has really brought the idea that gender is performative and detached the idea and brought this social construct of these things and put it in the mainstream. She'll say herself, it's an assertion. She's saying this is her interpretation of it, but it's not anything testable. There's no objective science to it. But, you know, she's written a defense of the taboo. So like when, when the church was, saying you've got to be wary of moral relativism, it's kind of this stuff they were talking about, yeah. where these philosophers that are creating a postmodern world that is supposedly superior to our old archaic values, what they're saying is all these things are social constructs, it's all power dynamics, and it's all just arbitrary products of our history and social, and so we can change them and reshape them and remake them. And it's kind of like that Chesterton fence thing. They're throwing away all of these things that have been foundational to the stability that we've enjoyed as a society. 
And then people will argue as no, that's not what we're doing or anything. It's like you just have to be very careful. Yes. Like you can you can follow by their a lot fruits, of, you, you shall you know, know them. <laughs> so as so you go well, down the I line. know that that's something that I consider that a thought terminating cliche. It's something that you can say that's comforting that turns you back to the church. But oh no no no, you, you no. I'm saying there are, apply there that are beyond fruits. the church. I, I'm saying yeah. apply that beyond the church 100. So so when the woke mob comes, right. what you're saying is. Although you don't believe, you will be hiding in the cultural hall with all of us with your <laughs> weapons to fight in the battle. Well, for no, Western I mean, freedom. absolutely. I, you're joking, but I feel much safer among Mormons who still hold to some form of objective truth, even if I disagree with it, because Mormons also believe that I should be free to have my own sense of objective truth and, yep. you know, and, and the ability to speak my mind even if they disagree with it. Now, they won't let me speak my mind if I want to be counted among their numbers because they'll boot me out right right away. But at least they'll let me in the cultural hall and I can eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, hey with, and supervision. So, <laughs> with supervision. With supervision. <laughs> no, I got to have a well, high priest next to me the whole time to make sure I don't talk to any kids. Well, I mean, like yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Simone de Beauvoir and these people I learned about in my BYU women's studies class, we were assigned oh, man hating 101. I we, called. We were assigned feminist. Well, icons the thing to is, do, to do yeah. projects on, I was assigned Simone de Beauvoir. I was about to be president of BYU Democrats. I was super excited for this, and I was doing all the research on her. I was like, I am the best male feminist around. The, my my jeans were as skinny as they've ever been. I was the best oh male feminist on campus. <laughs> campus. I learned she was a pet. Right, like that's what I learned. And and that whole thing made me go, I mean, aside from the church, maybe think, OK, a lot of these postmodern ideas that are being pushed. Is it worth reading her essays if I know based on her personal life where some of her goals are? And so I apply that to a, a lot of, of, of the, uh, the, the, the ex-Mormon podcast Modern apologetics. Right? I'm not calling them diddlers, right? I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying they're doing that. But what I'm saying is I think you should be able to – someone's personal life, I don't think we are strong enough as human beings to truly detach our personal life from our worldviews and our philosophies. When you're pushing a certain worldview, you can't pretend as if your personal life has no bearing on it. And this is the reason why I'm super weary of John DeLynn. <laughs> I'm super weary of Mike Norton. Everyone is <laughs> Mike Norton. I'm super weary of some of these guys because I, I look at what they do in their lives and I go, I do not think you are credible enough to be speaking about healthy marriages. I do not I think you. you know, I totally agree so, with you, Kwaku, and I think that that – I don't agree that it invalidates something that once someone would say, but I think that it's part of the calculus that you have to configure. But I want to point out, this is why a lot of people don't like Joseph Smith. And if you want to see the depth to which I, I, I back no, I that up, there's totally like a three-hour yeah. podcast on the happiness letter. That if you start and you listen to that entire argument about the happiness letter and it's all cited, you may come away understanding why people would apply that same analysis to Joseph Smith and decide to reject him as a prophet of God, no, and it's yeah, using the no, exact same I, argument you just made. Fair enough. And yeah, no, that's fair, that's fair enough. Mm -hmm. Isn't the happiness letter? Isn't that like the, like not? It's it's like it's not the CES letter, but it's like it wanted to be. Right? Isn't it like like you know what I'm saying? No, like, no, no, no. Happiness letter was no, written to Nancy Rigdon. Oh, yeah, it's like it was written to Nancy Rigdon when Joseph proposed that she be his secret illegal plural wife. 
and she rejected him and she started to raise a fuss and 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 he said i will write you a letter and if when you read the letter you can see it, it includes the voice of god in the first person so you can see joseph is using the voice of god that you know in the first person in his case for why his proposal of plural marriage was actually righteous and just and overcoming her moral objections to it. Oh, and yeah, and so I'll just, if you want it, yeah. you can just Google Nancy Rigdon happiness letter and you'll see a three hour podcast that goes into the background because she has a long history with him. Like he was involved with her when she was like nine years old or something. And, and there was, it, it went a long ways, but so what's but number that would give you a coming, sense of why someone would reject Joseph Smith yeah, so on that same ground. We're coming I, up on number three. I think I what I'm going to do recap number. Oh, two, well, I need to I need to close yeah. this loop. Oh, yeah. on okay, recap cool. number Sorry. Two. Sorry. I thought you did close that loop. Baby. No, that's okay. So, <laughs> so what it takes to overcome this is to allow yourself to see the good in the church. Allow yourself to see the good in the world. Allow yourself to see the good in the flawed history of the United States. You know, because all of us are imperfect. And for any of us to pass moral judgment and completely demonize another person, you're going to miss some of the things that you can learn from other people, from other institutions and everything. And so it, it you can get in that mode where you're just hypercritical. of, But then it takes a toll on you psychologically. You start to be depressed. You start to lose hope for yourself, for the future. And it's a really dark place. Yeah. But it is facilitated by this mindset where you just become critical of everything. And once you pull yourself away from that and you start to see that it's okay to find good things and to be okay with bad history and to it, it opens you up to reconciliation and it can open you up to reconciliation with an individual, with an institution or with your own past. And I think that that is a principle that we're losing sight of that. It's something that Kwaku, I think in particular, and you guys all have spoken to numerous times on your podcast. And it's something that I hope that ex-Mormons start to see value in trying to find good in. It doesn't, I'm not even talking about just the church. I'm just talking about in your entire outlook, um, even things that aren't perfect, because yeah. there's a puritanical impulse that religions go through. And one of the reasons that religion is a safer space is because they got through their puritanical impulse in the back. And the solution to it was, well, nobody's perfect. Christ is the only one that's perfect. So we can't condemn each other and put ourselves up as perfect. Like if you're among people who have that as a baseline, then it's a lot harder to have people canceling you and making, you know, puffing up their chests on social media and demonizing you without realizing that they're, you know, it's just it's like the struggle sessions in communist China. A lot of the people that were doing it later found themselves yeah. struggled or sent off because that Nuts thing memes, is right? a circular firing swag yeah. and it, it eats things up. So then I guess um, before we move on to subject three, I'd have one question for you about a practical application of this, Jonathan. I, I, I agree mm -hmm. with like 99.9% .9 of what you say. I don't say 100% because I'm sure there was something in there that was wrong. Yeah, no, that's fine. Right, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and besides, when my bishop sees this video and he says, ah, oh, why didn't you disagree with this? I have to have an out. So that, <laughs> so you, know, that you don't get I accept it. You, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm just kidding. But um, Dang it, Curtin, I just can't get through to you. <laughs> yeah, but then... It, it, I guess I'm going to try and put this into a practical application. You sound a lot like um, a friend now. I don't want to call him an ex-friend. I'd like to think we're still friends, you know, but a strained relationship due to his multiple woke versions of a lot of the philosophy you've talked about having lost a faith in God. Right. And now there's this big thing of him not mm -hmm. wanting to give permission for his child to get baptized. 
wife wants hmm. it the kids wants it want it they're all still believers they these are the most insanely overachieving on the spiritual scale of children I've ever met just because like as eight and 11 year olds, they're going through spiritual exercises questioning like, do I actually think God exists? Dad says, no, mom says, yes, mom says, pray. Dad says, this is all just emotions. Like I'm talking with these, actually I shouldn't say 11 year old. Now it's like 13 years old, you know, but I mean, do you know what it's like to talk Mm -hmm. to a 13 year old who's literally saying, you know, I'm trying this month to figure out the difference between just my personal thoughts and the spirit. Like that's amazing questions. Some dudes don't ask until they're like missionaries. They get stumped in the middle of the third discussion. Right? So would what would you say to that person who maybe is more cynical and woke than you? Would you say in that situation, like, hey, I actually, I, I think it's a good thing to let our children get baptized, especially if they want to? Hmm. I, I think when you're talking about a kid, it's not really the kid that is driving that as much as I know that it feels good to say the kid is choosing it. But the church now has to deal with a mixed faith marriage. And to the extent that the church wants to live up to the idea that it respects the wishes of the parents, then that will play out. So if the church says that we need consent of both father and mother in order yeah. for a child to be baptized, then the church will stand by its policy on yeah, that. I'm, and I'm I think I, policy, I've had bishops. I agree there has to be a policy of mutual consent. I never want there to be any kind of coercion out of any kind of religious ritual or anything like that. I'm just saying, if you were sitting there having a beer with your buddy and you're at a bar and that buddy was the woke version of you, you know what I'm saying, and was the one not wanting to, wanting to kid, uh, get his kids baptized, right after you just gave me this you know, 20 minutes of recognizing the good parts of the fence, mm-hmm. not letting too much cynicism uh, 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 pervade while still maintaining your skepticism, what would you say to that guy as you're just mono-to-mono advice? Okay, yeah, sure. So we're dealing in this scenario, in this hypothetical, with a child who really wants to get baptized and a mother who really wants to get baptized, but the father is wary of it. Yeah. And but, so but informed consent they, is all there. Reading the Book of Mormon, going through the trials, like I mean, you're dealing with dude, my grandpa was lying about his age at 16 years old to want to go freaking die on the beaches of Normandy. All right. So if, if there's, you know, a 14 year old that wants to get baptized, because by the way, I'm merging yeah. like seven cases in our stake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Into one hypothetical story yeah. here. You well, I mean, saying? you have to be very careful. When you say consent is there, I think you and I would both agree that a child cannot consent to the relationship that Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault would want them to have because they're not mature enough to make those kinds of decisions. So if you're going to apply that same principle of consent to an eight-year-old, then it's really... You have to think very carefully carefully about that. I'm not as worried about the eight-year-old as the 17-year-old who's been put on ice for it for now nine years. And it seems like now it's more of a culture war than it is Mm -hmm. an actual spiritual war. Right. Well, I think there comes a point in a father like that where you have to kind of take a cost-benefit analysis of the relationship you have with your son. And it's possible, like, it's really easy to get really all up in arms about these things, but if you center, we're going to use that language that there's so popular, center your relationship with your son Mm -hmm. and just say, you know, is there anything, if you can look at this concept of baptism, and it probably is more relevant at eight years old, not as something that you consent to, but as a a time where it's important to talk about certain moral principles. And this is another thing that I think you kind of miss when you leave the church, if you don't realize its value. And as you could say that, yes, baptism is this thing that could, you know, coerce and manipulate someone, but 
let's let's deconstruct baptism, okay? It, it's a time where we set a standard relatively young in a person's life where you talk to them about the reality of moral dimensions to your choices. The fact that the things that you act on and choices you make, the way you treat other people, impact the people around you, impact the world around you, and impact yourself can limit the choices you have. So starting to talk to a kid young about the impact of their choices is actually really good. And that's part of the conversation of baptism. I think that, you know, a lot of parents are afraid of what they perceive as the coercive elements of baptism. And I, I get it. But if you're already in a situation where you, you've made the choice and you're in a mixed faith marriage and you've made some compromises to allow them to continue to go to church, then you just have to realize that if you prevent them from being baptized, there's certain milestones that are going to miss in the church. Yeah. It's kind of funny when I went and to my father's your day, approach oh. is one that prioritizes. Sorry, you, you, we you, lost you, you, glitched, for a we lost you for a second. <laughs> oh. but I thought it you sounded like you paused. Yeah. So, so sorry. I was just yeah. going to say that when I went to the father's day activity, there was like six of us fathers there. Cause we were like a really small ward. And I realized I was actually the only baptized member. Like my ward has a bazillion mixed faith marriages in it. You know, that, both ways. That is unusual. You know in what my I'm own, saying? Yeah. I was so literally I, the I only baptized say, member. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the parents could say, wait a second, he's going to miss out on the milestones that are the part of the church. And if it's really important to his kid, as long as he's doing it saying, listen, I understand this is important to you and you want to make that decision, but I want you to keep an open mind. You know, I'm going to respect your choice to, um, you know, go through this and have the church be a part of your life. And I want you to share your thoughts and feelings about it, but also understand that I'm your dad and um, I'm going to have a different way of looking at some of these things. And I love you just the same. And I want you to understand that when I communicate these things to you, it is out of love. And I don't want to coerce or compel you either way, but um, they, he kind of has the opportunity to be more open and, you know, more respecting of the individual's agency because it's okay if he chooses to do it, you're still going to love him and he's, you're not going to feel like he's missing out on anything. You're going to continue to give all of your love to him. And I don't know, it's a tough position. And I can't say that what I've just said is the right way. It's just kind of how I would approach it in mm -hmm. that position. And, but I can definitely relate to no, someone who says, I really we need you to give wary us the of exact objective truth of the, yeah. the only possible hey, no, answer in this yeah. hypothetical you're right you're, you're totally I, I good. love everything you say and we're gonna have to live stream here hopefully a practice stream in the next i don't know 10 minutes so in the next like five minutes can you hit number three yeah can you hit number three? well number Let's three is it. an extension of both of the first ones and that is okay. forgiveness and grace sweet the concepts of forgiveness and grace sound like you're talking about some sort of religion they sound religious just the idea of forgiveness and grace but they are interpersonal dynamic principles that are so powerful because none of us are perfect. All of us are going to hurt people we love. All of us are going to make mistakes. All of us are going to fall short of some personal idea. And we're going to have people in our lives hurt us. And if we take the worst chapter in somebody's life and then try to get them non-personed, whether you want to call it canceling or demonization or whatever, it's going to, if you start applying that to everybody in your life, you're going to find yourself alone and in a, in a, in a sad state of affairs, psychologically speaking. Yeah. But when you contrast that with what can happen when you extend forgiveness and grace, you know, even on this issue of like race relations and, and everything, 
Forgiveness and grace opens the door to reconciliation. It opens the door to empathy. It opens the door to a, a stronger bond and connection for our society and for interpersonal relationships. It is so much more powerful than absolute demonization. Now, that can be abused. You can have people who feel that they're entitled to forgiveness and grace without being reciprocal in the way that they treat the harm that they've done. Yeah. But I don't want to, like, if you leave Mormonism, I don't want to let go of the the value and, and the effect of forgiveness and grace. Um, and even you could say, well, Streeter, you should show forgiveness and grace to Joseph Smith and the church, or, you know, why are you leaving or whatever? It's like, to extent, I do, but there's a difference between forgiveness and grace for somebody's personal failings and then taking as legitimate their claim to speak for God. Those are two different things. Mm. And um, and I, so that's why a lot of ex-Mormons may reconcile a little bit to the church, but that doesn't mean that they're going to uh, shape their lives after the decrees yeah. of the brethren. I, I think that what I see going worst in some of this with what you're saying um, is when you have people who leave the church and then they decide, oh, all of my family members, all of the people I used to know, they are 100% brainwashed cult members, and I can't interact with them without bringing that up. I, I think that's something that like just destroys. Now, I relationships. hear you guys say this a lot. Yeah, and that we all we both do caricatures on uh -huh. our side. Yeah, You'll have dude, just that go guy. through our comments, dog. <laughs> just go through our <laughs> no, comments. No, it's the same thing though. But it, like, <laughs> yeah. you got that guy, but then. Like there's people on the ex-Mormon side whose families and, don't want them over for and, dinner anymore. And I'm who not, are literally I, written out of the will. And, yeah. and just like you, you're not defending condemned. that, I'm not defending the other thing. And, 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 I, and I'm not saying that you are. I, I'm, I'm in fact, I, I'm saying that like, it, just like you're bringing up the people who like cut out their family because they left the church, they're 100% wrong as well. Um, I think they're not living that law of forgiveness and charity that you're talking about here however i've saw i i have issue though like like i'm a little bit with quake more on often this than one. not though i mean look if you say i don't know if i really believe that joe smith is a prophet and they go you'll show up your thanksgiving get out i'll punch you on the face i don't think that's happening but if they're saying hey um our religion's wrong and i think this is a cult and i'm going to talk to billy and sally my younger siblings and try to get them not to believe i think usually that's more of how it goes and the parents are like i don't want you coming over this is how you're going to be <laughs> to me that makes more sense yeah and that's actually what but, i've seen in the real life examples of yeah uh, of, but, of how and, and i think we can so disagree that, that on... issue about children is really important uh, i went through the same thing when when i left um you know, we spoke, I spoke to each of my kids. My kids were the same age as Helen Mark Kimball was when I was the same age as Joseph Smith was. And, and that was a convincing story for my daughters who were then felt more comfortable voicing the concerns that they had already had. And we as a family decided to leave the church, but we got people sending private messages to my daughters saying, if you want to talk about the church, I'm here for you. You don't have to, you know, I know your parents have chosen to leave, but we can have our own conversations. And when I decided to leave the church, I like unfriended all of the young men who were still minors because I didn't like their parents are the ones who are the stewards of their religious upbringing. And it's not my job to intervene on in that, you know, you know, if, if they want, I've had a few of them come back to me afterwards and talk to me about their feelings about when I left and, and what that did to them and, and then how they went on their own journey later, unrelated to mine. Yeah. But I think when you, it's a little bit difficult in a family dynamic where you may have a teenager who's like, I read the CES letter and now I'm going to talk to Susie about it. 
And that's kind of the things where if you're a parent and that is part of it, you better immediately start studying, start understanding and figure out this stuff. And you have to apply Rappaport's rules to your kids. And you have to understand that the, the reasons that they may have problems with it might have some degree of legitimacy. And you may feel that it's still your role to see to their moral upbringing and you define that in Mormon terms. But, you know, your goal as a parent is to shepherd your kids into adulthood, imparting as much of the, you know, what you've learned in life as you can to them. But they, once they, you know, they're going to get to adulthood and, and it's not like you're completely dominating them and then they turn 18 and then you let go. I mean, you're shifting agency more and more from a toddler who's completely dependent Okay, we've got your face back, Anger but we face. can't hear. And they're completely hammering on the family. <clears throat> and that's where, you know, Mormons are really good at being loving and understanding when when they're able to apply that in these situations. And it may just be like you guys brought up that video with Chelsea DeCenter talking to her dad and his, her dad saying, I can't love you and, and the pain that's real, that's there. And that's kind of in in that mode. And the thing is, there's a, there's wounds on all sides of that, and it's messy, and people are going to do things that later they're going to reflect on and say, I wish I didn't do that, and I didn't need to do that. And particularly like when you're in that anger phase and when you're in that, um, you just want to lash out. Yeah. You, the, hopefully the parents are mature enough. Yeah. You know, Now that my kids are getting older, I realize there's a lot of times where your kids go down pathways that's part of their journey where you totally don't agree with it, and you think they're really kind of getting themselves derailed from something stable, but you just kind of still love them through that. You're always there to be there if they end up and things will soften with time in, you know, a large number of things. And if, if you as a parent meet that type of criticism and condemnation with just as fierce or fierce cutting people off, you're going to have a harder time repairing that relationship in the future. And so that's kind of, I just want to look at the relationship. What can I do to maintain it and repair it? Even when we go through these bumpy times. I totally agree. And that's with, forgiveness and grace. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with the principle of forgiveness and right. grace for sure. Uh, we well, did lose you for part of that. So <laughs> yeah, oh, I am it's not all right sure. though, because I, I think you re- reiterated yourself. We lost you just for about uh, 10. Well, seconds hey, I'll send you my recording because I think my recording might have it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. oh hey, we'll there we see. go. Cool. We'll see. Right. So anyway, um, dude, we got to go. Unfortunately, this is two hours okay, and 22 do. minutes in. <laughs> Uh, this was awesome. I, I'm I'm very grateful. And, and by the way, I have to tell you what a beautiful world we would live in if uh, the worst we had to deal with on Midnight Mormons was Jonathan Streeter. And uh, <laughs> what a wonderful world we would live in if the worst you had to deal uh, with was Brad Whitbeck. Maybe not Quakewell <laughs> and Cardinalis. They're bad actors. But you know what I'm saying? At least Brad Whitbeck, you know? Hey, that's their profession. Yeah. Don't call them bad actors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh sad. I, I already Let checked out your IMDb page. Your IMDb page. Messiah. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. He that knows. He knows. Even though the beard is gone, he's seen through. Hey, dude. So you want to know what? I'll just wrap this up with uh, a, a simple invitation. Uh, first off, I loved everything you said. Second off, I loved how you said it. And third, let's let's keep talking. Let's keep the conversation alive. I'd love to. I'd love to dive deeper into some of the details of your misperceptions of history. Um, but no, I just can't. well, hey, I have a standing invitation. I did a thing before where, uh-huh. like, I try to. Get, if you can watch the happiness letter thing. Uh, and okay. dig into it as deep as you want to or whatever, then come back and, and make a defense of Joseph Smith and contextualize it 
and demonstrate it. It's hard to know what I'm talking about until you actually watch the thing. Can then I, I, I'm well, very just, you know, I'm going to make that defense, except for, you know, how like parents will teach their kids how to bear their testimony in primary or how to say their prayers. And they'll be like whispering in there next to him. I'm just going to have Brian Hales. Just, you know, just like, you know, <laughs> whisper just, in your just ear. Bare, barely off screen where you can't quite see him. You know what I'm saying? Just saying yeah. stuff into my ear because uh, he's far okay. more knowledgeable than I. Can I give a can I give a critique of somebody who just uh, my 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 social media platform that I consists consumer TikTok and Instagram? You I mean, every time I've seen the happiness letter, it's it's in someone's link on Facebook or it's like a five hour long <laughs> Zoom cast. <laughs> And it's like Not. I literally can't. I will not watch that. I, I, I just. I'm sorry. This video was so long. I don't know if you guys know. I've converted to another religion as this podcast has happened. That's how long it was. He so started long. his own cult while really? we've been like, talking. Just, my gosh, it's okay. too long. All right, so. Thank you very much, Jonathan. This right. is awesome. We will be in touch. How do people follow you if they want to follow you? Uh, thinker of thoughts on YouTube, thoughts on things and stuff on Facebook and uh, the website, thoughts on things and stuff dot com dot org. I don't know. All right. Awesome. Um, that's it. Nice. Well, there you are. Cool. Hey, All well, right. Thanks for thanks. coming. Hey, yeah. I, you've been great and listening to me. And uh, that's something that, you know, it's not usual that we get two different sides in this type of extended conversation. Don't worry, I will be cynically clipping all so. kinds of different things that Mr. Oh, I, I expect it. <laughs> We're going to have like a series. Kwaku, why didn't you respond like this at the time? You know? we'll, we'll just cut it up so that your face is like facing different directions so that it makes you say things completely opposite <laughs> yeah. of what you said. All right, man. Thanks for That's coming, okay. guys. This is right. Midnight Morning. See you guys night. in the next podcast. See you, man.